You know, you go to the malls or you turn on the radio stations. You uh, go, go anywhere and everything is holiday themed. Um, everything that's hitting your inbox is sales and holiday goods. And on your mind, whether you like it or not, is the holidays. You can't avoid it. For many of us, the holidays is a great season because it reminds us of, wow, we're, we have so much. We have things to celebrate. Um, there are a lot of memories and kind of nostalgic things about the holidays. Uh, many of us just love to, some people go crazy over the holidays. Um, but it's also a very stressful season. Uh, in fact, most of us, many of us, by the time Christmas rolls around, what's the thought that goes through your head? Oh, I'm glad it's over. Because there's so much extra, not only things to do, but it just makes your thought life, your, your activity life, your commuting life, your, your consuming life just really busy. And for those of us who kind of really want to spend this time recognizing that, wow, this season is really about Christ, it's very hard to do so. It gets harder and harder each year. Something else comes in the way. Oftentimes, Christmas is a time when our family issues, our personal issues, they come right to the foreground for whatever reason. You want to just say, this is not an issue. We just, let's just have a nice Christmas, but it just pops up. And so holidays are an interesting time where there are so many reasons why we can really disconnect with Christ. When this is a season, we're reminding, reminded that Christ came as a little baby to connect, not just to connect, but to save us and save humanity. It is a huge moment that oftentimes we just can spend a whole season, and unless you're reminded or unless you choose to, it's, he's really in the background. And so the church has been practicing this thing called Advent, which is a season of time before Christmas marked by four Sundays before Christmas. And they've been doing this every year for you know, a very, very long time. Because they recognized that, there, that other cultures, that the culture they were living in, they were pursuing other, there are other things that were really on the minds and on the hearts uh, of the people around them. And so it is a beautiful practice to help us to say Christmas in this season is actually not just a day. It's not really wrapped up in all the things and the presents and so on and so forth. They're great, but they can't be at the center of all of this. And so we're actually going to be walking through Advent again. This would be the 10th year, because uh, um, when I came to New Vision, we hadn't been practicing Advent. And when I was growing up, I didn't practice Advent. I had no idea what this was. But every year, I get really challenged. Um, not because I have to prepare new material, but because I fight harder to say, Christ, where are you during this Christmas? Where am I? Where's my heart? It is so easy to just lose and get lost. There's this guy, and his name is J.B. Phillips. And he is an interesting guy. He translated through the New Testament by himself. It's kind of like Eugene Peterson, but he was, this is back in the 60s. If you ever have a chance to read J.B. Phillips' translation of the New Testament, it's really good. Sometimes you're like, oh, I had no idea that that had that kind of nuance to it. And so in his kind of wrestling with the New Testament, he also kind of talked about where the church is and, and how to approach Christmas. And he put it in the language of, there is a danger. Okay? What was the last time you thought, oh, Christmas, watch out, right? But this is the danger he, he references. He says, the particular danger which faces us at Christmas, as Christmas approaches, is unlikely to be contempt for the sacred season. What he's saying is, most of us don't like spit, <coughs> Jesus. I hate everything, everything when it comes about Christmas. Most of us aren't bah humbugs. 
Most of us kind of like, oh, that's nice. I should do a religious thing. I should come to church on Christmas Day. I should at least sing some, sing some hymns. And uh, most of us, some of us do. Uh, back then they didn't, but maybe more now. Um, they don't even like the language of Christmas. But he's saying, that's not the danger. The danger is, nevertheless, especially for those who are in the church and in the context of Christ, our familiarity with Christmas, with the event, our familiarity may easily produce in us a kind of indifference. And if you've already heard that language, uh, you know, familiarity, you know, breeds contempt. Well, maybe it's not contempt, but actually for us it's indifference. You know, I've heard this story before. Um, there's other important things that are going on. Uh, there's, you know, there's not a new sermon uh, about Christmas that nobody's ever preached before that's going to open up my eyes. And so... If you've done this for a while, I'm 48, I've done this for a while, Christmas becomes, can easily slip into a a context of indifference. Because the danger is, what we don't realize is, Christmas actually is the turning point of history. Without Christmas, we have no idea where we'd be. We'd actually be in such a dark, dark place. Christmas is not simply just the fact that God himself would come as a form of of a babe, of a man, and would enter into our life, enter into our chaos and our story, and redeem us at at his cost. It's not just that story. It's that God planned this from the beginning. That all of history, starting from the beginning, God planned a Savior to come. He planned to save it through his own Son. Uh, It boggles the mind, and it boggles our, our understanding. But here's the problem. The true wonder... Sorry, I'm going to go back. The true wonder of Christmas um, and mystery, it, it still leaves us unmoved. We don't, we don't respond to that. It doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't stir us. It doesn't change the way that we see our world or even our practices. Familiarity may easily blind us to the shining fact that lies at the heart of Christmas time. It's his language to basically say, there is such significance, there's such meaning that would actually change the way that we live if we would pay attention to it. There's depth there that we need to pay attention to or else we stay at the surface in indifference. And I was thinking about this. When is Jesus coming again? Because Advent is not simply just about the fact that he came once but it's, and he planned to come and he came and did his thing and it's all done. It's actually a reminder that he's coming again. And when he comes, what is he going to find? I think, you know, this is just me and my speculation. I think it would be really interesting to see if Christ came during Christmas. Right in the Christmas season. And he would catch us pursuing the things that are the most valuable to us. Yeah. In the season that we celebrate and prepare for celebrating his first coming and expecting his second coming, can you imagine if he came during Advent? As we're shopping, as we're running around, as we're thinking about all of our life and what's important, and all of a sudden he came, that would be a real, very timely uh, entrance, don't you think? Yeah. But none of us think that, do we? None of us think during Christmas, oh my gosh, Christ might come. We have a lot of other things going through our hearts and minds. None of us think of the story. What, what was behind all the planning, all of the love, all of the care, that God put into the timing and the, and the, and the emergence of his son. And so what we're going to do this year is we're going to try to help 
ourselves and our families and our and our just our our, our our Advent experience by emphasizing the reality that God planned this from the beginning. He has been working in people's lives, in history, all the way through. He's been really carefully cultivating and and working within all of this chaos to one day bring his son. That in fact, Christmas is not about just the fact that Jesus came, that God came up with the idea, all right, I'm sick of it, I'm going to send my son. It's that all of our big story was in his hands all the way through. So what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate this practice called the Jesse tree. The Jesse tree has been, has been done for quite a while. And what it is is it's a remembrance that Jesus has a family tree, okay? And that in that family tree, God has purposely and intentionally and carefully and lovingly moved in people's lives so as to bring Jesus. But in that family tree, you can see who God is. You can see what he is doing and what he's going to bring. And if we pay attention to the Jesse tree, we see God's character and God's decisions and God's love all the way through, guess what? We know what we're supposed to do in preparation for his coming. We know who we are and what we're supposed to do. We we have a little more encouragement and guidance in terms of how do we spend Christmas? How do we spend our lives? If Jesus is coming again, and this is how God brought Jesus the first time, this is what God is planning when Jesus comes again. What do we do? How do we live? How do we build our families? How do we build our lives around it? So I'm going to walk through just some of the practical things that we're going to do to help us to do this as a community. But I want to get back into the text right now as we start off our Jesse Tree series. That Jesse Tree language comes from the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse uh, 1, sorry about this, a strange image is brought up. This is the prophet Isaiah. And he says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, who knows who Jesse is? Yes. Is Jesse here? <laughs> yeah. We, we actually referenced the Jesse name, and Jesse came in, and he's like, why is my name up on the screen? Right? Not Jesse. Who, who knows who the, who the biblical Jesse is? Okay. All right. There's, one of, there's a few of you. Well, Jesse actually is not a very popular figure. Okay. He's actually David's father. But he doesn't show up much outside of 1 Samuel. He shows up three or four places. Mostly in this passage. So Prophet Isaiah is saying something not about Jesse as much because Jesse is known because of David. David is the big guy. He is the him and Abraham and Moses and Ezra. These are like the heavy hitters of the Old Testament. The Jews look back and they say, David is the fullest expression, the closest expression of what it looks like when God's kingdom comes into place. Okay? Um, but it's also a reminder of how he fell so horribly. And it's kind of like the highest moment and then the starting of the greatest fall. Okay? So David holds a special, special place. They always look back to David. And the interesting part is when they are, as they are in the time that Isaiah is writing, when all is lost, when they have no trust in their leaders, the king at this time when Isaiah is writing is a guy named Ahaz. He's a horrible king. I mean, he was one of the first to offer up his son and, and sacrifice, his first son in sacrifice to a pagan god. That's how bad he was. It's not the fact that you would actually murder your son for your benefit, but actually it was a religious practice, a horrible practice that God hated. This was the leader of the country at that time. When all is lost, guess what? 
you remember David and how great it was. And you remember, you think, God, can you do it again? Can you do it better? So he references Jesse as a way of saying, pay attention. Remember what David was like. Okay? I, want, I want to fill in a little more of this, what's going on in the time that Isaiah is writing this. A little before this, in, the, in, the, in, the, in two or three verses before this is chapter 10, if you have your Bible, you can open up, you can find it. Uh, he references trees that have been cut down because he's saying that they are surrounded by enemies. So when the people of God, when they are right with him, they are not worried about enemies. Enemies fall. But they are so freaked out. They, they're, they're in danger of war, uh, devastating war that, that could wipe, wipe them out. And they're concerned about that. And they don't have a connection. Their king does not have a connection with God. So that's even scarier. Okay? When, you're, when, you're, when your leader has the, has the, has the button, uh, the nuclear button, and you can't trust him, it actually destabilizes a lot. Okay? So that's, that's what the situation that we're in. Interesting part is God says, all these nations, especially Damascus, who think they're so powerful, I'm going to clear cut them like a forest. They will have no strength and they will have no fruit. And then he says, but... I'm going to do something amazing in your midst. You thought, to the, to the people of Israel, you thought that all of your splendor and your glory and your strength, your oaks of righteousness, it was chopped down. You look around, your king is a horrible expression. Uh, situation at the time, if you look carefully in Isaiah chapter 1 and 2 especially, uh, God is hitting them hard because actually they got rich. They look like that they're doing well. Their economy is doing fairly well. But God says, you know what, how you got rich? Because the rich took from the poor. You've oppressed the poor so badly. It looks like you're in good shape as a country, but in fact, you're ready for a fall. And the people who are watching this, they know. And they are really disturbed. And so God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah into the situation saying, you thought, if you look around your country, you look around your nations and your people, it's a mess. It's a mess. And you're thinking, what's going to happen? Into the situation, he says, don't worry. I'm going to do something amazing. A shoot will come up from what you thought was dead. You thought your kings, they don't represent you know, godliness. They, they're not trustworthy. Um, they don't look like God. They don't, and actually, leaders have a huge influence on what happens in the country. Okay? Um, our, our experience today in our country will show, will show you how one leader can change up so much. What? But what he's saying is, this is the language of leadership he's saying, I'm going to start and I'm going to bring you someone that looks like David. Okay? Because he references uh, David through Jesse. But he says, I'm going to do something different. David was a, was a high king, but he also had a, a lot of faults. And his sons and all of his sons afterwards, it was a steady decline. You know what God's saying? I'm not going to work from the decline of David. I'm going to go back and I'm going to restart from Jesse. I'm going to do something better than David. Okay? A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, which looked dead, which looked spent, looked like it has no hope from. And from his roots, from that stump of Jesse, a branch will bear fruit. He's going to take something dead. He's going to make it all new. He's going to do a divine restart. So most of us don't know who Jesse is, but he is the, the father of King David. Okay? Um, and if you look at Jesus' family tree, this is a, a representation of Jesus' family tree. Uh, it's hard to see. Here we go. It's hard to see, but maybe, yeah, there you go. As so as you can see it. David's right here, and Jesse's right here. So Jesus has a long family tree. Okay? 
And there are two places in the book of, uh, one in the book of Matthew, at the beginning of Matthew, and one in Luke 2, where we see Jesus talking about, uh, they're talking about the genealogy, the family tree of Jesus. Who's ever read genealogies and like, oh my gosh, I can't even pronounce these names. Why did they waste time putting this in there? You know, um, and it's, it's kind of funny. Sometimes I, I, I have, a, have a, a, a little mischievous streak. I would love to p- pick a passage uh, that has all these unpronounceable names and then, <laughs> and then have somebody read it. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's kind of funny. Because when we look at these names, we're like, they're meaningless. They're meaningless. But if you look at those genealogies carefully, they're really carefully crafted. They're trying to make a point. Matthew's genealogy, you see three sets of 14 generations. 14 is very specific. And they're not going through just like our family tree, my father and his father. They're picking out specific people. And who they pick out tells you what they're trying to say. Okay? Well, we know that Jesse is David's father, but those genealogies in Luke and Matthew are actually a little different. And sometimes it gives you a little clue when you look carefully of what are they trying to say about this Jesus? What are they trying to say about this stump of Jesse? About this divine restart? About this person, this king, this leader who will actually come from extremely humble origins and will change up everything? Well, we, we find that uh, Jesse is David's father, and God is saying, I'm going to do something grand, even bigger and better than David, by even going back uh, behind David. Well, we're brought back to think about Jesus through this passage, because this passage is understood as prophesying about Jesus. Okay? It'll make sense as we look later on in chapter 11. But God's plan to restart all of the mess goes back not just to David and Jesse, not just to Isaiah. He goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. You guys remember at the bottom of that tree, okay? At the bottom of that tree, Adam and Eve is the starting of Jesus' you know, um, Jesus's family line. That this is the starting place of God's plan to restart. Everything that was once beautiful is now broken. Okay? So you know in the story... God tells, uh, uh, God tells uh, Adam and Eve, right? He tells them, you can eat from any tree in the garden except one. Okay, there's, there's all kinds of trees. There's ex- and there's even, at the middle of the garden, there was a tree of life and the tree of knowledge, good and evil. He's saying, you could free from any tree except the one tree. Okay? By inference, they could have eaten from the tree of life. Okay, can you imagine that? You could have had from the tree of life. Eternal life was right there. But they... For whatever reason, especially Eve, she was camped out right in front of the one tree she was not supposed to eat from. Now, I'm not blaming Eve. Uh, there's blame to go around, trust me. Because as you find out, Adam was right there. He was absolutely complicit. Okay? It was Adam's job to guard. And Adam was supposed to say, no, Eve. Right? You heard what God said. But instead he said, yes, Eve. She gave it to him and he ate. Right? What happened right after that? The eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The first experience of shame, first experience of you can't trust somebody, and you feel so alienated that you have to hide. You have to cover yourself. They hid from each other. They hid from God, and this is what happens. Man and wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said, Where are you? They had, and we think about Eden, they had the most perfect existence. 
no fears, no shame. Everything that they needed, they had perfect communion with each other. They had perfect communion with God. Can you imagine that? And then in, in one rebellious turn, everything was lost. Everything was lost. At the darkest time of their experience, God comes. And he doesn't say, how dare you, you're toast, I'm done with you. Instead, he asks, he seeks them, where are you, where are you? Soon after, he actually says something which, if you pick up, is a promise, a profound prophecy of a divine restart. To the serpent who deceived them, he curses. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Right now, the woman had trusted and believed and took the side of the, the serpent. And now she became, by her choice and by Adam's choice, an enemy of God. There was hatred. They didn't trust him. They didn't want him. Okay? And that's where they were stuck. God says something amazing. He says, I will put enmity between the woman and the serpent. I'm going to split them two apart. I'm going to draw the woman to myself. I'm going to change her heart. And through her heart, her life, her offspring, I'm going to change the world. Between you and the woman and between her offspring, that's the word for seed, and hers. The seed will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will strike his heel. Genesis chapter 3. Right after they lost everything, all of their splendor, God promises and institutes a divine restart. This seed is referenced and planned for Christ's coming. And all the Old Testament, in some ways, is God calculating lovingly, working within our mess and our chaos, looking for people who will partner with him, and then ultimately bringing at the perfect time this, not only this seed who will crush Satan's head, uh, but also this, this stump of Jesse who actually is going to bring in um, an absolutely restored community, restored humanity. So that's what the Jesse tree is about. We're going to walk through, uh, through our daily devotions, other kinds of things, step by step, how God did this divine restart repeatedly, to win us. But I want to pay attention, pay attention to what the result of Christ's coming, what the result of this, this branch that will bear fruit, the result of this offspring, the seed. What was God's plan? The reason is, number one, if you don't really understand or you know, believe that God can do a, a grand restart, you, you're, you're not aware of how he wants to look in your own life. But if you don't know what he's going to restart to, what he's planning to make, you can't join him in it. Um, why don't I do this? Before I go on, um, uh, let's take a little, little detour. Family genealogies are really important. Okay? A couple years ago, I spent extra time doing my own family genealogy. Uh, it's not just figuring out who your aunts and uncles are. And I got a big family. I've got, I got eight aunts and uncles. And I got 23 cousins. So I got a big family just on my father's side. But it's actually trying to understand what do they give you? Who are you as a reflection of that family of origin? We've got, covered this a lot in three... Uh, emotional, healthy spirituality, and other kinds of things. Um, family genealogy is important. Your family story is really significant. Yeah. Because then you understand why the people in your family, they are who they are. Why they ended up why they, they ended up. The, 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 their character, the way of their, who they are. You can understand. For example, my dad grew up in the war. Okay? And so he doesn't throw away a thing. <laughs> 
So growing up, I had no ideas. Like, Dad, why is the garage so, so, like, I can't even walk in it. So I would clean it up, and then within a month, it's just a mess. Because, you know, um, this is, he, he isn't, but he kind of is. Like, before we had the language of hoarder, you know? Like, it made a lot of sense. Wait a minute, he's not the only one who does that? But I had no idea why would anybody live like that until I heard his stories. Because he grew up in the war, and they had nothing. And there'd be moments in time where like, oh, I wish I had this. This would make such a big difference, but I don't have it. So going forward, when he would have something, would buy something, he wouldn't get to go because he'd think to himself, there's going to come a day where I'm going to need this obscure thing, right? I didn't grow up in that story, so I didn't understand. But when I understood his story, I understood him. I know how to relate to him. When I understand my family's story, where we came from, it makes a huge difference in knowing who I am. And then, how do I live from there? Do you realize Jesus' family tree is your family tree? The Bible story of all how messed up they were, as well as how God worked in them, is your family story. Okay? The same God who was active in their lives is active in yours. And if you don't make that connection, guess what? You don't think that you can, this is your story, you don't know how to apply it. Okay? You're in a situation, you've lost everything. And this is, not, this is not a story that means anything to you. But once you grip, grip this story into your own life, the same God who hasn't changed is going gonna, is gonna to encounter you and you're going to walk through it. It's going to change you. Stories make a huge difference. Stories give you identity. And stories empower you to know what you're gonna, how you're going to live in this world. So this story of Jesus, this story of the Old Testament, makes all the difference in the world. Well, in Isaiah, this branch who would come is described as one who's being filled by the Holy Spirit. He's going to do it differently. He's not going to look like Ahaz. He's not going to be disadvantaging the vulnerable to advantage himself. He's not going to be that kind of king. Instead, it says, verse 4, with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Isn't that interesting? At a time when all was lost, they, they had the richest, uh, biggest difference between rich and poor in their history of time. They thought their nation was doing well, but God was saying, this is so far from your splendor and glory. Guess what? The picture of what it would look like when the king, when Jesus actually comes into places, this is what he's going to do. With righteousness, he's going to judge the needy. With justice, he's going to give decisions for the poor. Okay. Now, uh, I don't know if this about you, but uh, I never heard social justice issues growing up about Christmas. Right? Why, why, why should we actually you know, think about, the whole time Christmas was about, was about crafting a beautiful experience for ourselves? Maybe because my parents felt like they were the poor ones, right? That God was on our side because we're the poor ones. But we can really be blind to the fact that when we're thinking about Christ's coming, when Christ comes, who's he going to decide for? What kind of kingdom is he after? Okay? What, is he, what wrongs is he going to right? It'd be a scary thing if the people who are looking for his coming find that He's coming, and we were either indifferent or, in fact, we were actually the ones who were oppressing the poor. I find it very interesting that if you see this passage, 
This is so clear, so opposite of what they were having at the time. And God's saying, when I do my divine restart, when I come again, when I send this, um, when I send my branch, this is what it's going to look like. It tells us how we should be spending Advent. It tells us how we should be reorienting our lives. A second thing that you see, not only is this going to be a restoration of righteousness and an emphasis on this, on the poor, because that's where God's heart is, is, he says, verse 6 and, and following, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. This is a picture of not just kumbaya peace, the wolf who is stronger, who is violent, actually, is not going to be able to, to, to tear apart the lamb. There's going to be this place where the, the disadvantaged and the weaker are not going to be taken advantage of. There's going to be this incredible peace. Yeah. Does this describe kind of like your hope and your dream or your frustration? Um, the things that are happening in our country, the things that are happening in our world right now, those are the things that Christ is deeply And if we would pay attention to the story of what God is wanting to do, who we are supposed to be, guess what? We begin to think about how do we spend our advent? How do we do it differently? The last uh, section here, it talks about how uh, this branch, this root of Jesse, what's he going to do? He's going to stand by the banner of all the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and the resting place will be glorious. What is he saying? That it's not just going to be the precious few who are inside the people of God who, who God is going to, to vindicate and be good to. He's going to rally all the peoples of the earth, the Gentiles, the people who are seen as not valuable, not loved. And in that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from all these different places. Why does he mention a second time? Because he did this once before. There was a divine restart amongst the people of God when they were in Egypt. What did he do? He gathered them. So what is Isaiah doing? He is looking backwards and saying, not just like he did like what he did with David. He took a, a, a poor shepherd boy and he raised him up in righteousness. Not like, just like he did back then with Exodus, but God is going to do something grand. Okay? Sorry for this big theological language, but I want to whittle it down. Christmas is this remembrance that no matter where we are, how dark our personal lives are, how dark our family situation is, how messed up our country is, how messed up our leaders are, how broken our world is, how badly the strong are taking advantage of the poor and there's injustice in the world. God is going to do a restart. It's coming. It's coming. Okay. Now, I watch the news and I can't take my eyes away from the news and it's really depressing because we're seeing the exact opposite of this. And I don't talk about politics often, but it's not about politics, it's about people's lives. This is a great chance for us as a community to really pray into, reflect on, who are we looking for to come? Are we ready for Christ's second coming? What are we doing in our Advent practices that is sensitizing us to the one that God is sending? Or are we so desensitized that if he would come, we are lost. We look just like the world. Or we are so indifferent. 
Well, there are three practices that we do every Advent to remind ourselves to say, we're looking for Christ. We're, we're aligned with him. We want him. And the three practices are found in the book of Matthew, chapter 6. And these are not things that you want to do during holiday times, okay? Pray. While everybody is partying and enjoying all that's out there, you're praying. Fast. While everybody is feasting, you're depriving yourself, okay? And give. While everybody is going into debt in order to shop for things that we don't need, you're giving away. Isn't that interesting how, how relevant this is 2017 as it was back then? And if we would actually intentionally stay with these practices, guess what? During Advent, during the season, we are a little less captivated by all the pursuits of the world. We are less indifferent. We start thinking about not just the people around us who are in need and allow God to move in our hearts to care for them, but we actually are preparing for the one who's going to come. One of the things that we're going to be doing is, and, and that we've already started, is we, we're sending out daily devotions. And so Pastor Richard and I, we're tag teaming. I'm doing Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Pastor Richard is doing Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. So we're sending out emails. And if you want to be on that list, just give me a heads up if you're not on there already. It's also going to be posted on the app as well. But I find that in writing the, the devotions themselves, it, it makes me really wrestle. Where's my heart during this Christmas? Yeah. Who is Christ to me? How am I digging into an expectation for him to come? Or am I just getting trapped and caught up in this, in this, uh, in this cycle? One of the things that we're doing with our families is we're, we have distributed uh, books. Uh, this is a book by Ann Baskoff, a camp called Unwrapping the Greatest Gift. It walks through the Jesse tree, different stories with beautiful pictures and with a devotional as well. And um, we had one of our own, Kathy, uh, make a whole set of ornaments, icons, that kids can, can um, do the devotion with their families as well as and if you want to do this, you don't have to be a kid. Uh, you can color, right, and put it up on your tree uh, as a way of centering your heart and mind, saying, what is, this, what is at the center of all of this? It's Christ and this grand story. And as we do every Advent, we really encourage people to give. Yeah. And as a target for our giving, we're actually asking people, once again, let's, let's give to KCS. So if you don't know the KCS, it is a, it is a, a nonprofit organization in, now in Bayside, and they do incredible work. And it's not just because we know somebody in our midst who's, who's there, but they do amazing work. They, who do they care for? They care for the, the poor and the needy. In fact, they do, they're the only ones who do Meals on Wheels for a certain demographic, uh, for an Asian demographic. And so if you know elderly who are shut in and they don't have access to all these helpful funds, what's, what's going on? They're being fed meals. They're being cared for. They're being given community. There's youth projects. There's mental health being uh, uh, made accessible to people who just don't have the funds to do so. They're doing a lot of amazing work. They're doing the kind of work in many ways that's on the focus in the mind of Christ, even revealed in this passage. So we're going to do all these things to help us to focus on what are, who are we during this time of Advent? Who are we expecting? Yeah. I don't want you to bow your heads with me. And we're going to pray a bit.